sponsored by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you that are new here, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We offer a doctoral program, seven master's degree programs, including two that are online, and 18 certificates of graduate study. If you are at all interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to a staff member at the conclusion of the event or visit us at IWP.edu. To support the work of IWP, please visit us at IWP.edu backslash donate. Before we begin the lecture, we wanted to express our excitement and officially launch the IWP's China Asia program, which will be led by Dr. Amanda Wong, as she serves as the program's director. IWP's China Asia program is a new initiative that encompasses academic courses, extracurricular lectures, and research about China and Asia, as well as partnerships with academic institutions in the allied countries of the region of Northeast Asia. Throughout these partnerships, IWP will invite Asian students to participate in IWP's master's and doctoral programs, and provide IWP students with study abroad opportunities in those Asian allied countries. We're all wishing Dr. Wan and the China Asia program nothing but the best as they begin their journey here at the Institute. Today's lecture is entitled The Evolution of North Korean Espionage. Dr. Wan is a recent graduate of IWP, earning her doctorate of statecraft and national security. As mentioned before, she will be serving as the director of the China Asia program here, but also is the founder of IWP's Asia Initiative Lecture Series, through which diverse scholar practitioners have presented their expertise on China. Dr. Wan also holds an MPS in Arts and Cultural Management from the Pratt Institute in New York, and an MA in Government with a specialization in National Security Studies from Johns Hopkins University. Her professional experience includes having worked in both NGO and government sectors, serving as a legislative assistant at the New York City Council, and as a Diplomatic and Consular Affairs uh, and Partnership Intern at the New York City Mayor's Office for International Affairs. She has also worked at the U.S. Committee for Human Rights in North Korea, where she was a contributor to the organization's publication entitled The Parallel of Wuhan, North Korea's Anjongu Prison Camps. Dr. Wang will also be teaching a course at IWP on the topic of North Korean espionage starting in the spring semester of 2023. With that, please welcome Dr. Amanda Wong. Thank you everyone for coming on a rainy day, um, as um, Sean mentioned. <laughs> I'm the director of the China Asia program, um, as well as the founder uh, of the Asian Asia Lecture Series here at IWP. Today um, is the inaugural event for the China Asia program, and I'll be presenting a lecture on the evolution of North Korean espionage. So first, I'll review North Korean Intelligence Service, AKIS, organizational structure, followed by North Korean philosophy, which is known as Juche ideology, and then I'll go more into details of the practice of North Korean espionage, and I'll conclude with the Q&A session. First, um, North Korean Intelligence Service's organizational structure. So the hereditary dictatorship of North Korea begins with Kim Il-sung. He's the first uh, leader of North Korea as well as the founder. Uh, he ruled until 1994, and he's, he's the one who established North Korea officially as the DPRK, uh, Democratic People's Republic of Korea. And he established ideology as the national philosophy. Exactly. If we could just have you put the lavalier mic on. So the captures here on the recording. Let's see. Perfect. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you, Sean. 
And the second leader of North Korea is Kim Jong-il, Kim Il-sung's son. He ruled until 2011 when he died. He initiated his Hong Kong policy, which means military first. And then he also initiated North Korea's nuclear and WMD pro uh, programs, which are reinforced by the current leader, Kim Jong-un, so the grandson of the first leader and son of the second leader. Uh, he initiated Pyongyang policy, which means simultaneous military and economy development. And it's um, highly speculative that North Korea will conduct another nuclear test, which will be the seventh nuclear test. And, you know, given the fact that North Korea has launching so many short missiles and tested SRBM, ICBM, uh, the threat is, is getting definitely more um, serious. So when it comes to the topic of North Korean espionage, then the first question we want to tackle is why does North Korea conduct espionage? There are two reasons. Number one, regime survivability and stability. Number two, North Korea's ultimate foreign policy goal as well as their national uh, security strategy is to achieve the revolution idea revolutionization of South Korea, which means they would communize the entire Korean peninsula under the North Korean goal. So the current leader, you know, Kim Jong-un. Then what are the target countries? Their primary target country has been and will always be South Korea. And the secondary target country has been and will always be the U.S. And some tertiary targets include countries in Asia mainly, uh, Japan, China, and other South Asian countries like Thailand, Vietnam, Malaysia. Western Europe, during the Cold War, it was mainly the East and West Germany. In the Middle East, Lebanon, Syria, Pakistan, and a few countries in Latin America, as well as North Africa. And they have also exploited um, some terrorist groups in North Africa, such as Hezbollah. So the term NKIS refers to the following North Korean government agencies that conduct espionage, including the United Front Department, Bureau 225, Special Operations Force, and this is under the Korean People's Army, which also includes the famous General Reconnaissance Bureau, which was uh, established in 2009 by Kim Jong-un, and the Ministry of State Security. So the org chart. Under Kim Jong-un, there are main four key uh, components that conduct clandestine operations. So the first is UFD, which is tasked with training and dispatching North Korean spies, mainly to South Korea. They also conduct um, psychological warfare, special operations, um, and also they're in charge of managing inter-Korean dialogues. Bureau 225 is North Korean version of the CIA. They train um, and dispatch their traditional uh, covert operatives, meaning um, spies. And they also manage, they create and manage um, communist, illegal communist underground organizations, mainly in South Korea and Japan, Joseon Soren, or in China. Um, they also conduct terrorist attacks, uh, assassination attempts, and propaganda and intel collection. 
The GRB is comprised of six components. Operations Bureau, uh, Bureau Reconnaissance Bureau, Technological Reconnaissance Bureau, Foreign Information Bureau. It's more like, you know, um, collecting foreign information, like international affairs. Policy Bureau, Rare Area Support Bureau. And finally, MSS is uh, specifically focused on conducting domestic surveillance, um, purging dissidents, defectors, and abducting foreigners, um, including mostly South Koreans, Japanese, but also uh, uh, Americans and Europeans. Then NKIS's uh, hierarchical decision-making pro process begins from Kim Jong-un. He sends down a mission to the Secretary of the Department of Espionage against South Korea. This is a small but elite um, spy networks, spy organization, government organization within the party. And this goes down to the undersecretary, and then goes down to policy division and the policy research task force. And once they get the mission or an order, they would collect basic information, you know, go back to their archive and, you know, make some written products, do the basic research, and goes back up the chain. Now, I want to review the North Korean philosophy, which is known as Juche ideology. And what I want to mention is that Juche ideology is different from Chinese communism or the Soviet Union communism. So what is Juche ideology? Juche ideology was first established by Kim Il-sung, the first leader of North Korea, when he established DPRK. But it was this uh, intellectual who actually got his master's and PhD in the Soviet Union. Um, his name is Hwang Zhang Yap. He's the real architect of Juche ideology. But he defected to uh, South Korea back in the early 1990s as he experienced that North Korean leaders have um, exploited Juche ideology to defy, uh, you know, to defy themselves and create this cult of personality. But Kim Il-sung was the one who actually um, established, established it as a political system, along with this monolithic and totalitarian political system. So Juche, the word itself means self-reliance. However, it really means independence, North Korean independence from, from foreign influence, including, of course, the US and South Korea but including its communist neighbors, um, China and the Soviet Union at the time, and now Russia. So ever since the first leader of North Korea, uh, the Kim family has been utilizing, exploiting this ideology more as a tool of indoctrination, and this was the cause, uh, the most important cause for the North Korean revolution. And by doing so, North Korean leaders have uh, reinforced this ideology in order to legitimize um, their reason to spread the North Korean communism. So, as you can see, the one in the left is one of their propaganda posters, and as you can see, it uh, includes all uh, different um, ethnic uh, groups. 
And the photo in the middle is the famous, those are the famous Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il statues in Pyongyang. If you're a North Korean citizen and if you don't go there and bow to those statues when, you know, one of those leaders passed away or, you know, on, on a holiday, North Korean holiday, then you're being sent to a concentration camp or, you know, at worst, you're um, shot in public. And uh, the one in the right is the famous Jiche Tower in Pyongyang. Then how is Jiche ideology different from traditional Marxism-Leninism? So when Kim Il-sung was, of course, he would order his um, scholars, you know, to create this uh, ideology, and he was, he's the leader, so he would just name it. But um, it was Hwang Jang-yeop who helped Kim Il-sung that when North Korea would create their own version of communism, um, they would apply the basic concept of Marxism-Leninism, which is class struggle, but then when they were applying it to the North Korean version, they believed that the class struggle should be against uh, imperialists as well as capitalists, meaning the U.S. and South Korea, but not just, not just those democratic countries or Western countries, including the Soviet Union as well as China. So like Lenin, Kim Il-sung emphasized the revolutionary struggle, which is again, uh, it's a good, you know, convenient excuse for the leader to uh, defy himself and solidify his dictatorship. But then he was, especially he was using this cause in order to reunify the Korean people under his rule. And in his 1955 speech, and this is a famous speech where um, Kim Il-sung first mentioned Juche ideology and announced it, especially with the party, uh, it's called on eliminating dogmatism and formalism and establishing Juche in ideological work. He specifically highlighted that North Korea should be independent from China as well as the Soviet Union. And this is a key part in his speech. And as you can see, um, the highlight parts in red keeps mentioning the Korean Revolution, Juche, would equal to our own revolution. And I want to review uh, the chronology, ideological chronology of the North Korean regime. So, 1948, Kim Il-sung was installed as the first leader of North Korea by the Soviet Union. 1949, Kim Il-sung statues uh, were uh, established and the title of Suryong first appeared. 1955, Kim Il-sung delivered a famous speech to sort of officially mention um, the importance of Chicha ideology. And 1955 was a key, uh, sort of like a turning point for Kim Il-sung, because Christ so there was Khrushchev's famous secret speech, which indicated desalinization and peaceful coexistence between the communist and the capitalist wars, and this uh, Kim Il-sung 
uh, rather perceived this as a threat against uh, the North Korean leadership. And also, um, you can start uh, assessing the indicators of an impending Sino-Soviet split, split. Again, this was a threat to Kim Il-sung. And Kim Il-sung interpreted this Sino-split um, as more of a, um, a division between China and the Soviet Union. And Kim Il-sung started to tilting towards the Soviet Union. So Kim Il-sung and Hwang Jung-yeo attended the 21st Congress of the so uh, Soviet Communist Party, 65. China's Cultural Revolution started again. Kim Il-sung didn't like it. He thought that this was a revisionist power, and he believed that we have to go back to the Russia, uh, the Soviet Union. From 66 to 69, Kim Il-sung tilting toward the Soviets. In 67, Kim Il-sung announced the creation of North Korean Communist Theory, known as May 25 Doctrine. This is more um, one of their small initiatives to reinforce the Juche ideology. 1970, Juche formally adopted as the sole guiding principle of the state. So by that time, North Korea has done, um, they finished uh, officially um, implementing Juche as their national philosophy at a national level and political level. 74, Kim Il-sung appointed his son, Kim Il-sung, as his successor. 77, North Korea declared that it reached the final stage of socialist utopia. 78, this was the beginning of China's economic reform era under Deng Xiaoping, and Kim Il-sung, again, did not like this. So he tilted even more towards uh, the Soviets until it collapsed. 1980, Kim Jong-il, the second leader, um, he finally joined the WPK's Politburo. So this would mean that Kim Jong-il within North Korea has obtained pretty much all power. 1994, Kim Jong-il succeeded his father when Kim Il-sung died. 1997, North Korea initiated Juche time. So you can see how their cult of personality has evolved throughout the decades. So their, they, uh, their first year is actually uh, 1912, which is the year of Kim Il-sung's birth. From 2008 till 2011, North Korea initiated a revised ideology known as Neo-Juche Revivalism. But this was just a simple um, uh, a political initiative um, for Kim Jong-un to start uh, solidifying his position as a possible successor. But all of these small um, initiatives, like neo Jeter Revivalism, May 25 Doctrine, they are all uh, founded upon the basic principles of Juche ideology. In 2011, Kim Jong-un succeeded Kim Jong-il when he died of a heart attack, and until uh, he's the current leader today. Then, how did Juche ideology influence the North Korean psyche? And as I have highlighted, it really reinforced the North Korean version of cult of personality, because if you don't believe it, then you're left with pretty much two options, either being sent to the concentration camp or being shot in public. So as you can see, uh, this is the first generation of the North Korean youth. And you see how they're all, you know, clapping and looks extremely happy with their leader. 
second generation. So you can see that these, you know, uh, teenagers have grown up and became military officers, and now they're, you know, clapping for Kim Jong Un. And if you are one of those members where you're there, and if you don't clap, then we would all know that what's going to happen to you. And this is the third generation. So, and as you can see, uh, these uh, young North Korean women are all either, you know, in tears or clapping for the leader to worship their leader as the father of North Korea. So in order to reinforce this ideology, Kim Il-sung created this mechanism, it's a, a political mechanism called the Suryang, and Suryang means supreme leadership. And this political mechanism was um, was very convenient, and it was it was a reason. It was a strong political reason for the North Korean leaders to uh, establish a domestic surveillance system, especially target uh, uh, potential dissidents. So Suyang, uh, supreme leader, which at a broader level it means father of North Korea, and. When Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong, Kim Il-sung created this concept of Suryong, and it was Kim Jong-il who really reinforced uh, the implementation of Suryong's system. When, when they're reinforcing this, when they're implementing this uh, political system, what they did was they applied the basic uh, values and concept of a Korean Confucian, Korean Confucian feudal society. Korean Confucianism. And Koreans are very good at reinventing a concept. So Korean Confucianism, a lot of this is one of the things that are not really well known, but Korean Confucianism is actually different from the Chinese Confucianism. Of course, they share the same root uh, because Koreans adopted Confucianism back in the Korea dynasty. However, even when they were adopting Confucianism, they thought that, okay, even if you're the same Asians, we don't share exactly the same cultures with uh, the Chinese. And they wanted to create, reform uh, this Confucianistic uh, idea uh, solely for the Koreans. And those the key uh, values um, of, of the Korean-style Confucianism is, is actually the filial duty and obedience. So if you look at a Korean family, it's always the father. I mean, it's it's common <laughs> traditionally, but it's even more reinforced um, in the Korean um, society than uh, the Chinese society. So father would be always the leading figure. You will have to be obedient to your father. If you're not, then you're a really bad person, morally bad person. And this has been reinforced for centuries, hundreds of years, until today. And these North Korean leaders were um, clever enough to pick up those values so that they could solidify their totalitarian dictatorship. And this was the photos. Um, it was the Workers' Party of Korea's 8th Congress back in January of 2021. And the importance of those that event is 
the fact that Kim Jong-un finally solidified his position as Suryong. So that means now he has obtained the absolute power in North Korea. So in short, Juche, meaning self-reliance in direct uh, translation, means independence from foreign influence, really means the North Korean version of revolution. Then, what are their national strategy objectives or um, intelligence activities? So, as I mentioned, North Korea's ultimate foreign policy goal um, and their national security objective is a strategy against South Korea, so targeting South Korea. Uh, through, re, uh, in order to achieve the revolutionization through reunification. So reunification would be more like a middle goal in order to communize the entire Korean peninsula under Kim Jong-un. Now, well, we'll look at the practice of North Korean espionage, and these are some North Korean hackers wanted by the FBI now. So when it comes to the topic of the practice of North Korean espionage, uh, what makes North Korean espionage so unique? This is due to their continuous evolution of their modest operandi, uh, due to South Korea's changing domestic environment dynamics, including politics, culture, trend, um, technological development, so on. So first, I'll review types and training of NKI's covert operatives, uh, meaning you know spies and illegals, infiltration, and operational methodologies. So NKI's operatives uh, include both illegals and non-illegals, and illegals. Um, they're divided into two groups, covert operatives, um, traditional spies, and reconnaissance operatives. Covert operatives, they're field operatives who are deployed abroad, mainly South Korea, and they establish networks um, in order to collect information, intelligence, and conduct clandestine operations. And their training period is up to 10 years, which is the only case that you can ever find in the world of espionage. And especially if you're targeting South Korea, you have to go through this training called South Koreanization Education, which means you have to learn South Korean history. You have to pick up the South Korean dialect, um, you know, cultural trend, and everything. So this is, which is known as, in their own language, Chokkuha Kyu. Reconnaissance operatives, they are mainly um, GRB personnel who conduct reconnaissance by infiltrating South Korea. They have also conducted some special operations and assassination attempts, and their training can be more than five years. Non-illegals would include combatants and support operatives. Combatants, they're special operatives, kind of like, you know, special forces. Um, and they provide uh, inward uh, support uh, for these uh, covert operatives and reconnaissance operatives um, when they are infiltrating into South Korea or any other target countries. And their training period can be more than five years. 
Support operatives are any um, officer who can provide you know, communication assistance or um, any North Korean officials who can pose as um, you know, trading uh, uh, official or um, hospitals or even restaurant workers in third world countries uh, such as Thailand or even in Mal Malaysia. And these also include foreign individuals who are not only recruited uh, by the NKIS, so ethnic South Koreans who are living abroad, also um, the abductees. So their selection process is very competitive. Um, they target high school graduates, college students and graduates, and WPK's uh, senior level members. And Selection methodologies, they spot assess candidates. However, unlike uh, the West or even uh, South Korea, there's no uh, volunteer application. No volunteer applications are accepted at all. So which means if you're chosen, then you have no option. Which also means then, if you want to be chosen, then you have to born a spy. Selection so uh, period is about a year. Standards are uh, pretty similar to the Western uh, standards or even the South Korean version, except for the last element, exemplary background, uh, which means Sangbun. So Sangbun is the North Korean version of class system, and how your Sangbun is, uh, is is given. Uh, you you are you're born with your own Sangbun level, um, given. Uh, that if your grandparents, uh, whether your grandparents have uh, served um, in the military, if your grandfathers went to the war, Korean War, and they did they fight for North Korea, of course, if they fought for South Korea, then your sangbun is the lowest ever. Um, and also, whether your parents have been loyal to the party and the North Korean leaders. Process, the first step uh, is about four months. Um, it's a preliminary selection, and it starts at um, city and county level. Second step is about five months re-evaluation re at a provincial level. And North Korea, whether um, you know, it's training their spies or you know, uh, indoctrinating their people, North Korea is very good at repeating the same thing over and over again. Re-evaluation, re, uh, repeat the same, uh, uh, you know, the training or indoctrination um, in, uh, operation. The reason is they believe that by doing so, they can brainwash the people more effectively, but at the same time, they keep evaluating a candidate whether he or she is completely loyal to the North Korean system, to the leader. Third step is of a three months final evaluation and selection. And they only select maybe one or even less uh, candidate per province. Infiltration. So they mainly infiltrate into South Korea, and when they do that, coastal is their um, the most uh, efficient route for them. Or land via DMZ a little more dangerous because um, there's you know South Korean uh, military presence right there, and underwater infiltrations. So when they conduct coastal infiltration, they usually come with a mini sub uh, via Jeju Island. Jeju Island is located further south of the south uh, the peninsula of South Korea, 
And then they would come near Jeju Island and infiltrate through the shore via scuba diving. So um, that photo is, that's a mini-sub uh, located, uh, it's exhibited in a, uh, the Museum of the South Korean National Intelligence Service. Um, those are one of the um, uh, uh, main uh, mini-subs uh, that they use. What they do is, uh, in a port in North Korea, in a port, they would get on a commercial fishing boat. Of course, this is a North Korean operating ship posing as a fishing boat. They would sail that near Shandong uh, province of China, and they would transfer it into a mini-sub that looks like that. And they would come near Jeju Island and uh, near Jeju Island, then they would scuba dive uh, up to the shore and infiltrate into Jeju Island. And soon after they infiltrate into Jeju Island, then the first role that they have to do is bury all their uh, operational equipment. And these are some of the um, infiltration routes that have been detected by the South Korean government. So infiltration into foreign countries, what they do is they go to third countries with a North Korean passport, and especially third countries that are friendly with North Korea, and they would acquire citizenship in those countries, um, specifically China, South Asia, Vietnam or Malaysia, uh, Middle East, uh, Lebanon, or Pakistan, or Latin America by posing as a defector and, uh, or a refugee, or even as an orphan. And with that citizenship, they infiltrate the U.S., uh, but legally through Canada or Mexico uh, by posing as a refugee. So some cases include Shin Gang Su, he infiltrated Japan back in uh, 1965 uh, under his cover name as Tateyama Tumizo. Kim Yoon-hee, she blew up the South Korean um, aircraft back in 1987, everybody on board was killed. Uh, but And she, her cover name was uh, Mayumi Hachiya. She infiltrated Beirut uh, by posing as a Japanese traveler. Jong Soya, he doesn't look like a Korean at all, but he's actually uh, ethnic, China, uh, Korean, ethnic Korean Chinese. And he infiltrated Beirut um, in 1979, and he would travel from Beirut to the Philippines, and then eventually he, would, he infiltrated South Korea, and until he was arrested by the South Korean government, um, he was a scholar, a famous scholar at one of the top uh, elite uh, universities in South Korea. And even his wife never thought that he was his own ethnic and his cover name was Mohammed Kamsu. Operational methodologies. So North Korea has been utilizing and will uh, continue to recruit sources, especially South Korean sources. However, they have evolved uh, their methodologies, as I have mentioned, due to South Korea's dynamic uh, uh, changing dynamics. So prior to the 1980s, um, North Korea, the NKIS, has been specifically targeting 
um, South Korean individuals who would have their family members in North Korea. So, for example, um, let's say if there's one uh, North Korean spy and he has some family members in Seoul or Busan, then he would infiltrate South Korea and then start indoctrinating their family members. And oftentimes, they will return to Pyongyang as they have to with their family members and mostly from Jeju Island, via Jeju Island. However, since the early 1980s, um, South Korea has gone through some political events, mostly led by uh, South Korean university activists. And a lot of them, they had a good cause, um, because until then, South Korea was under an authoritarian government. They had two dictators, Park Jong-in and Jung Hwan. However, um, some activists, they were um, self-radicalized. And then they started, uh, you know, studying Juche ideology and they're getting indoctrinated, they recruit other university activists, they brainwash each other. And, and therefore, the South Korean government uh, started arresting um, a lot of uh, these activists who were self-radicalized. And, um, and as South Korea has uh, reinforced um, their domestic surveillance in order to go after those self-radicalized activists, this rather became a vulnerable operating environment for North Korean spies because you know the domestic domestic surveillance system is is now even more uh, stricter. They can't really send down dispatch their uh, spies. So what? So North Korea has realized, okay, we got to come up with a different methodology which could be safer for our spies not to get caught, and which could also be more cost efficient and strategic. So there are mainly uh, two methodologies. First is Todetuchu. This is an operational methodology to establish North Korean legal's bona fides by establishing their reputation with local residents even if they fail to obtain legal status. Jusapa operation. Jusapa is, is uh, the famous group of those um, activists who mainly uh, believed in Juche ideology. They created this group. This is a legal group, and then they would influence other uh, subgroups, uh, legal communist organizations in South Korea. And North Korea would target the members of Jusapa, and they would you know, recruit them and give them missions to recruit other South Koreans and keep brainwashing and disseminate uh, the indoctrination, North Korean indoctrination textbooks. They also conduct special operations, including terrorist attacks, assassination, abduction of foreign individuals and defectors, and coordination with illegals operating in foreign countries and cyber attacks, and they specifically have been increasing uh, the number of psychological operations. The reasons are, first, safer, you don't have to worry about getting caught, because it could be either, whether it's, it's black psyop or white psyop, you know, they can't, you can't, you can't be jeopardized you know, uh, by, by launching, you know, your spy is not going to be arrested. Um, number two, cost-efficient strategic. So some famous cases
uses of special operations include the Blue House raid on uh, 21st January of 1968. This was a failed attempt uh, to assassinate then RP president, Jungi. Uh, and the guy in the photo, his name is Kim Jin-jo, he's the only survivor. And he, when he was arrested, he defected to South Korea immediately. He actually helped this, uh, now he's a general in South Korea, but he helped this general uh, uh, to, um, to uh, go after all of those uh, North Korean spies um, at the time when they attacked uh, the Blue House. This, and the photo in the middle is the uh, you know, famous case of capture of the USS Pueblo. There, uh, everybody on board, they were detained in North Korea, but however, they're all safely returned to the U.S. The photo on the right is the Rangoon bombing back in 1983. This was also a failed attempt uh, to assassinate then-President Chun Doo-hwan. Chun Doo-hwan was not killed, however, 21 government officials, suffering government officials as well as reporters, were killed. And I believe all of those individuals in the photo were unfortunately killed. So then, as I have mentioned, psychological warfare is, uh, I believe, is one of their key special operations, and we have to uh, pay more attention to their psychological operations, because this is very effective when you brainwash your sources and even foreigners who are new to Jujie ideology. So why do they conduct psyops? Again, it is to achieve their ultimate foreign policy goal, which is the revolutionization of the two Koreas under Kim Jong-un. And what are their strategic and tactical objectives? Strategic objectives to solidify the North Korean dictatorship, especially uh, to realize its revolutionization strategy. So these uh, some key elements would include deification of North Korean leaders, um, propaganda operations centered on Jewish ideology, um, specifically targeting South Koreans and foreigners. And they would also uh, focus on influencing the domestic policies of the U.S. and South Korea Tactical objectives to promote North Korean communism, and especially anti-Americanism in the region, and influence political dissidents in South Korea and abroad. So this would uh, include exploitation of its front groups, uh, mainly in South Korea, Japan, China, and other countries, you know, Western Europe, um, Latin America, you know, pretty much everywhere around the world. Then, how does North Korea conduct its psyops? Uh, most media is broadcasting systems, uh, propaganda leaflets, traditional operation, psyop, uh, psyop, and other prints, artworks, paintings, poems, literature, and everything, human connections, um, and of course, um, through the uh, internet. So, in North Korea, there are eight broadcasting systems including four main radio stations and four TV channels. Radio stations include Pyongyang Broadcasting, 
Pyongyang Broadcasting Station, uh, white psyops mainly to indoctrinate, continuously indoctrinate its people on uh, Jewish ideology and also targeting some uh, targeting South Koreans as well as China, uh, those ethnic China, uh, Koreans in China as well as Japan. Korean Central Broadcasting Station mainly white psyops and they focus on define the Kintami, Voice of Korea, Black Psyops, and this is uh, the main, um, um, I would say, the, the main um, quick, uh, uh, methodology for the NKIS to deliver its missions or orders to North Korean spies who are uh, operating um, clandestinely in South Korea, meaning illegals. Pyongyang FM Broadcasting Station, this is FM-only black psyops um, and targeting the younger generation of South Koreans. And these are main TV channels. The main TV channel is Korean Central Television, and this is a state-owned, I mean everything is state-owned, but this is the key, uh, which is mainly controlled by the Korean Central Broadcasting Committee of the Workers' Party of Korea. Mansa TV, which is an educational um, channel, Athletic TV, Sports Channel, Yongmansan TV, another educational channel, however, this is provided by the University Student TV Department of Korea Radio and Television. And these are some photos of North Korean propaganda leaflets, and as you can see, they promote anti-Americanism and anti-South Korean government. And this is one of their famous artworks. Um, as you can see, Kim Il-sung sitting on the launch chair, looking at the missiles being launched and having a moment. <laughs> And this was uh, created after um, the death of the first leader, Kim Il-sung. As you can see, uh, these North Korean people, they're in sorrow, they cry as if their own father has passed away. But you can also see how artistic it is. It's, it's a very uh, Soviet Union style, and, or the Chinese, one of those propaganda styles. And this is the North Korean version of Pekdu Mountain. And I also come from an artistic background, and my uh, assumption is that, or my analysis, artistic analysis, is that red color would uh, indicate communism. So I believe that that's why they probably painted not only the Pekdu Mountain, but all the way goes down to South Korea, meaning they want to communize the entire uh, Korean Peninsula. And these two photos are textbooks in North Korea, indoctrinating textbooks um, for the elementary and public middle school or university students. And those documents, so those are very interesting documents. Um, uh, those documents are indoctr indoctrinating uh, documents that were secretly disseminated in South Korea 
under South Korean alias, um, and these were actually smuggled by Dr. Kim Dong-shik. Um, he is uh, probably the highest um, ranking North Korean spy, not just a you know military official or um, diplomat. He's a spy spy. So, and he uh, he was arrested. He infiltrated South Korea twice. First in 1990 and second time 1995. And he was arrested in 1995 and he defected to South Korea. Now he's uh, he's, he's promoting human rights. Uh, he's you know promoting the awareness of the human rights issues in North Korea. And now he's um, he has a lot of conferences, you know, really attacking the North Korean Jewish ideology. However, uh, so these are the documents that he brought uh, during his infiltration in 1955. And I realized that although they have Hangyeong or Hajong, those are all South Korean names, these were actually written by Hwang Jang-yak, the architect of South Korea. And Hwang Jang-yak was actually ordered by Kim Jong-il to uh, publish these indoctrinating documents targeting those self-radicalized South Koreans for the NKIS to recruit them and use them as surrogates instead of dispatching you know, more number of South, uh, North Korean spies. Uh, North Korean IT psyops, they also utilize internet uh, websites. Um, these are the three main websites, Joseon Tongjin, it's one of their main websites, uh, and it's it's uh, controlled by the North Korean Central News Agency stationed in Tokyo. And Joseon Infobank, uh, mainly uh, indoctrination purpose. It's also indoctrination purpose, but it's also to uh, disseminate propaganda materials on the internet. So, of course, mainly targeting South Korea, Japan, um, anywhere. And you would not want to uh, click one of these links because if you click these links, then you would get um, what is it? Uh, and a virus, antivirus. And when North Korea is conducting uh, psyops, they actually uh, conduct psyops uh, by combining those operations, those methodologies with human operations. So it's more like a hybrid of human psyops. So for example, this person in the photo, his name is Pakter, he's a deputy director of the UFD front group, which is known as the Community of Peace in Chosen Asia Pacific, which is one of the key, uh, the biggest, um, uh, the biggest uh, front groups. And he's also a former counselor to the uh, North Korean mission to the UN, and he would, even though his cover is a diplomat, um, he would send his missions to these South Korean, ethnic South Korean um, agents living abroad. Mr. Dogilam, he was a journalist based in LA, he passed away two years ago, um, um, died of COVID. Yunisang, he's a famous composer based in Berlin, but that was his cover. I mean, he was also an artist, but um, his main mission was to create um, musical uh, artworks uh, that can promote 
Jewish ideology. So lyrics or even the songs, you know, you can all of his uh, all of his musical uh, products are very uh, revolutionary and, and propaganda stuff. So these two key individuals would then send Pachter's mission down to the second generation or even third generations of South Koreans who are recruited by um, either these two individuals or, uh, or the NKIS. So uh, some key individuals that we have to pay attention include Han Ozak, his director of research institute called Spark in NYC. That, that's, uh, that's a front group um, in New York, and I believe the Bureau will, hopefully the Bureau will pay more attention to these front groups. Uh, Kim Young-han uh, is pastor and director of Cha Sasang Institute. Cha Sasang, it means Jewish ideology. And as you can see, he's awarding an American in the photo, which means these groups, these individuals, have been recruiting and indoctrinating Americans in this country with their freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. Christine, she's the founder of Women Cross DMZ. She's the one, uh, she's a very influential uh, figure in New York uh, uh, where uh, she recruits the youth, uh, the younger generation of Americans, not just Korean Americans, but Americans. So, uh, in the U.S., um, the key North Korean front groups include Minjo Tongshin, which is chaired by Nobi Lam, who died of COVID years ago. KANCC, uh, this is one of the uh, biggest um, uh, Korean-American associations, but what they do is they organize trips to Pyongyang, where those travelers get indoctrinated in the middle of Pyongyang. They would visit and go bow to those statues um, in the photo that I showed you before. And then, you know, they go look at the Juche Tower and they don't even know when they're being indoctrinated. Because North Korean communism is very good at it. You just don't know when you're indoctrinated, but by the time you finish and come back to the States, you are already brainwashed. And now, you want to spy for your Korean. Nodutto, um, this was mainly led by Christine Ahn, um, another uh, front group, but they're specifically targeting the younger generation of uh, Americans. Hominyan, this is a pro-North Korea organization headquartered in Seoul. Um, what they do is they specifically, uh, they're specifically missioned to implement the June 15th North Korea North-South Joint Declaration between Kim Jong-il and uh, Kim Dae-jung back in 2000. And they're chaired by a pastor. So which means uh, they're exploiting a religious freedom, you know, a freedom of your religious beliefs. U.S. Cha Sasang Institute, um, I showed you uh, the pastor uh, named Kim Yong-hwan, he's leading this group, but they're more focused on um, researching Juche ideology and disseminating um, uh, any propaganda stuff here in the U.S. Interestingly, he was born in North Korea 
and he got his PhD at the University of Chicago. And these are more um, organizations, um, front groups in South Korea, and there are more that, that just can't be detected or arrested, because a lot of them are functioning as illegal communist underground organizations. And the famous one in Japan is Chosan Soryan, Chosan Soryan in South Korean is called Chosan This is where, uh, this is the group that NKIS has been targeting for the last couple decades. Um, these are mainly ethnic South Korean Japanese, so it's easier for uh, the NKIS to recruit them. Like they don't have to train these people other than um, operational methodologies because they already have some networks, you know, family ties, and they speak Japanese, so it's easier for them. So as now you have looked at the list of front groups, I created a small spider web chart, and this is only a tip of an iceberg. So if you can see these boxes highlighted in green. These are based in the US. And the one in blue uh, is based in South Korea. The ones in orange are based in Japan. The ones in yellow are based in European countries. You look at the ties, pretty much it's very sophisticated, but at the end of the day, they're all connected, interconnected. They all fund each other. They all support each other. And I'll conclude my presentation, and I'll take questions now. Let's give a hand for Dr. Wong. Jeju Island because 
not many, uh, at the time, North, uh, South Korean government was just born and the politics was still crazy. So people would pay less attention. And that sort of became, um, that was the origin of how communists started using Jeju Island as a strategic geopolitical uh, um, point, um, sort of location where they could pick up um, self-radicalized individuals or even abduct some South Koreans. Usually those self-radicalized South Koreans family members. What they do is actually throughout the two generations, the first generation of South Korean communists who volunteer, they go to Minnesota, they go back to North Korea, a couple decades later, they become a general or something in the North Korean government. And now, what, however, but when they left Jeju Island, specifically, uh, mostly during the Korean War, they left their wife, they probably left their children. What they do is now, uh, you know, they have this high position, but they miss, miss you know, their firstborn um, uh, son or daughter or, you know, their first wife. They come back and they would convince them, you know, you want to live here or you want to come back. Cause I'm, and at the time, North Korea was actually... Uh, more um, about, uh, you know, economically uh, developed at the time, and up until um, 1970s. Then what they do is, well, and, and South Koreans, or Koreans in general during the Korean War, they don't really know uh, much about uh, the ideological differences. They just didn't have a concept. They said, you know what, you can be fed three times a day. You want to come with me? They would go. Uh, do you have any more information about how offensive operations against North Korea have been working specifically with the South Korean intelligence services? How are they, I mean, in America, you know, we consider North Korea to be a denied area. It's pretty difficult to run human sources there. But South Korea seems to do it much better. What, what types of sources and methods do you know of that they have? So I'm not affiliated with South Korean uh, government at all, especially their um, intelligence service, ENIS, so I don't have any um, you know, resources where I don't have any access, but I know that South Korea has been collecting intelligence, and South Korean intelligence uh, organizations' number one target is North Korea. They have an archive, they, they, they you know, conduct operations, daily operations, just target North Korea, but mostly monitoring. South Korea would not launch a preemptive attack against North Korea because they believe that it's going to be a war easily. And that's the last thing that they want. However, I, when it comes to uh, the topic of North Korean espionage, it's such an esoteric topic. So even when um, I was conducting research, um, there are uh, almost no resources available um, in a public domain, and even in South Korean. Um, so I would, um, I would, you know, I interviewed and I got some um, documents from my sources, including Dr. Kim, but uh, these are uh, pretty much, these are the main um, operational methodologies that also have been detected by South Korean. And South Korea's number one, South, South Korea understands that North Korea's 
Berkeley has been um, increasing the number of operations targeting those self-radicalized uh, individuals, so mainly Chisaka operations. Thank, thank, thank you, Amanda, for an excellent presentation. I wanted to ask you, um, to what extent do um, those who infiltrate the South um, see a picture that is so radically different than what they might have been given to believe by the propaganda in the North? that they would defect, or they would, I mean, that's, I mean, I think that's good enough right there. It would seem that there would be a lot of defectors, but it depends upon, I suppose, how much they've been brainwashed. And I'm wondering about the degree, therefore, uh, to which the, the South Korean government is involved in its own information operations and its own counter-brainwashing operations? That's a great question, Dr. Lanchowski. South Korean government um, has been continuously conducting anti-propaganda operations, and I believe the U.S. has been doing that so as well. Um, when, they, when they do that, um, they would target um, those self-radicalized uh, South, uh, South Koreans. However, um, it's just that the level of effectiveness um, is just way much more strategic. You know, the way that North Korea has been conducting these psychological operations, just way much more strategic and too influential. And a lot of um, younger generation, you know, folks in, in my generation, younger generation, you know, millennials, they have their own problems, you know, getting a job, full-time job is so hard, and especially South Korean society is even, uh, it's, it's very competitive, so uh, what then, what they think is, okay, I have, uh, there's a recent poll that more than 70% of South Korean population have a bachelor's and probably 30% have a master's degree, but getting a full-time job is, is extremely difficult. And now they think, well, I've made so much effort to get a bachelor's, a master's, even PhD, and I still don't have a full-time job, then maybe we should just go communist, socialist, where, you know, food is free, or where, you know, you're given a job, um, and then they turn a blind eye to, uh, to these groups um, and they start getting indoctrinated, they believe in this uh, cult of personality, this, 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 this value, this Jiji ideology, it's really centered on you. It, it says, human are, humans should be the center of the history. Then they believe that, okay, I became someone important finally after all those years of suffering. And when North Korea uh, has been dispatching its spies, um, infiltrating South Korea, whether it's South Korea or anywhere in the world, what they do is they would take that spy's family members as hostage so that 
they will not defect to those countries. They know that whether you're North Korean or whether you're Chinese or whether you're uh, American, you know that once you're exposed to a free world, you don't want to go back. Freedom is very addictive. Freedom is so good. You never want to give up your freedom. You can choose whatever the food you want. You can choose whatever religious belief you want. You can create your own uh, organization, whether it's political or whether it's cultural. You can believe in your own ideology, and you're not getting uh, arrested. Or, you, you know, most importantly, you're not sent to a concentration camp. So even these spies who are either, who voluntarily defected or who had to cross the bridge because they were arrested, they, in their memoirs, um, they all wrote that as soon as they went abroad, and usually uh, it's China, North Korea would send their spies, whether even if you know, the spies' final destination is like Beirut or, or France, they first sent their spies to China uh, for their first experience, and as soon as they were sent to even China, they thought that the world is different. And the world we have been in, in the history uh, or, or their world knowledge that they learned back in North Korea was all, not, was all, you know, nothing but a lie. And they start having this moment. You know, what if I was born in this country? What if I can just defect? What if I can just escape and never come back? And then, but then the second thought you have is, well, what about my family? You know, what about my parents? Or what about what about my kids? Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I just had a question about you mentioned that uh, tertiary country would be an example would be China. And that even in the beginning with the Juche ideology, they even countered uh, the Chinese communism. So I guess I was wondering, um, are there operations that go into, because I know there's a sizable Korean population in Dandong and in the Korean Yangbyen prefecture area in the Jilin province. So I wanted to know, are there operations that go into China? And if so, what's the Chinese government's I can't imagine that they'd be okay, but yet there's these cities that are absolutely great. So I just wanted to ask here. Thank you. That is another great question. So when, you know, we all know that China is uh, North Korea's closest ally. However, North Korea had some interesting relations with China. They were not always happy with China as we uh, looked at the chronological the ideological uh, chronology. However, um, to a degree, uh, they can conduct some clandestine operations, but at a mild level in China. But North Korea understands that they don't want to upset the Chinese government um, because they have been receiving supplies uh, from China, uh, those supplies uh, that are banned uh, by, you know, by, by the sanctions. Uh, that's more at a strategic level. Second, and another reason is China is where North Korea has been, um, you know, has been conducting money laundering 
um, to secure Kim Jong-un's personal funds. And if you want to utilize those banks in China, you don't want to upset them. Number three, North Korea understands that China is also very much, um, they have reinforced their own domestic surveillance, and China does not, uh, would not give a mercy, even if it's a North Korean. If they think, because China's number one goal is, you know, uh, is, is their um, uh, security, is their maintain, main, maintaining their own security, specifically their border security. So if they believe that North Koreans create some problems uh, by crossing uh, the Yellow River, uh, you know, at some border, they're not going to um, accept it. Um, and as you mentioned, a lot of um, ethnic South Koreans, and in, in South Korea we call them Chosongjo, uh, a lot of them are from Yongbyon area. However, they have been, these, these people, South Korean, ethnic South Korean, ethnic South Korean Chinese people, they have been ignored or disregarded by China. And you know, as we all know, China is also very much uh, discrimi discriminating against ethnic minorities, you know, specifically Uyghurs or Tibetans. And this would also include South, ethnic South Koreans. Because they only uh, uh, give these privileges and advantages to the Han Chinese. So South Koreans believe that, these you know, ethnic South Koreans in, in China, they believe that, okay, well, we have been discriminated by China. Then what we want to do is, we want to believe, we want to go somewhere. We want to be acknowledged by the same Korean people who believe in our own value in North Korea. Of course, you know, they don't, you know, really appreciate them, but they believe that, okay, these are the people that we can use. And they would, you know, like them, oh, you're such a, a important people for us, we're St. Koreans, we share the blood, we're the brothers. Could you please go down to South Korea, make some gangs? In Korea, in South Korea, there's uh, this uh, uh, area called Incheon, that's actually where Incheon Airport is located, but it's a big city. Fully developed. However, there's some um, areas where if you're a South Korean, you don't want to enter there. Because um, it's just controlled by either Russian mafia or those ethnic South Korean mafia who would um, conduct those operations, mainly by delivered by, um, by North Korea. And if you are recruited by China, then they would conduct uh, missions on behalf of the Chinese government.